Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'd like to introduce, uh, before we get going, uh, Elizabeth Colbert, uh, the author of Field Notes from a Catastrophe, Man, Nature and Climate Change, and The Sixth Extinction, for which she won the Pulitzer Prize in 2015. Uh, for her work at The New Yorker, where she's a staff writer, uh, she's received two National Magazine Awards and received and the Blake Dodd Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. She lives in Williamstown, Massachusetts, with her husband and children, uh, from where she's joining us now. And under her, A White Sky, The Nature of the Future, is her latest book. Uh, welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, um, Patty. Thanks for, thanks for having me, I guess. Uh, First things first, can you explain why you called your book Under a White Sky Under a White Sky and why we should be worried about it? Well, the title comes from sort of the, the end of the book. You have to wait to the end to get there. Uh, and it comes from this idea. The book, the book is really about ways that we're contemplating, in some ways already are, in some ways contemplating, intervening in the natural world to counteract previous interventions in the natural world. And this particular intervention is, is solar geopolitics, solar geoengineering. The idea is, you know, we've already, we've really mucked up the atmosphere. We've added so much carbon to it. The world is warming very rapidly. Um, if we want to try to reverse or counteract that, there, there, there are very few options. And one that people have thought about is mimicking volcanoes, just putting up a lot of reflective particles, which is what volcanoes do when you get a major eruption uh, into the stratosphere. You create this sort of a stratospheric haze that reflects a lot of sunlight back to space, and that has a cooling effect. Um, and it has also a lot of other potential side effects, one of which is that it would alter the appearance of the sky. So that's where the title Under a White Sky comes from. Um. I should just, I love the book. Uh, Thank you. But but uh, just just for some context, okay, we've just had uh, the UN Secretary General, uh, Antonio Guterres, describe the sixth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, as a code red for humanity. Um, you wrote on that report in the New Yorker that the most optimistic scenario, but not the most realistic, uh, is that carbon emissions would fall um, to zero in the next few decades and some new technologies, we don't know what, will be developed to suck billions of tonnes of CO2 uh, out of the air. Uh, we don't know how these drawdown or negative emissions technologies will work, do we? So the situation is quite desperate. Yeah, I don't think people appreciate the extent to which... Um a lot of these scenarios and, you know, once again, all of this is sort of um, abstractions because, you know, they're, 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 they're just models of the future. But to what extent the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is already building into its scenarios very, in some cases, very large amounts of, of what are being called negative emissions. So basically pulling CO2 that's already up there out of the atmosphere. Um, and, you know, part of the book, in, in, in one chapter in the book, you know, I go to Iceland and 
where people are pulling CO2 out of the air and transforming it into rock. It's a very, it's a very small project. It's not getting billions of tons of CO2 out of the air by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, and a big, big question mark, I, I, it couldn't be bigger really, or, or is, is, you know, could we do this? Are we relying on technologies that are in fact feasible? And, you know, we do know how to take CO2 out of the air, as, as many scientists told me in the course of reporting the book. It's, it's actually, you know, something we've known how to do for a long time. If you're in a sub, you need to take the CO2 that the crew's just breathing out into the sub. You need to get that out of the air. Otherwise, it's going to build out and they're all going to be unconscious pretty soon. So, um, you know, we know how to do it, but a sub is a very small contained space. And, you know, the world is, is a whole lot bigger. And we're talking about vast quantities. Okay, so even if those technologies do work, uh, we're still looking uh, on the most optimistic scenario um, at something like 1.6 degrees of warming by mid-century, uh, which means more extreme weather, more disease, um, no doubt more deaths. Um, do you think we will need to resort to geoengineering? And is your book part of an attempt to get that debate going? Well, I honestly, you know, I honestly leave that question very open and honestly in my, you know, heart of hearts or mind of minds, however you want to describe it, uh, am very, am, you know, ambivalent. So I'll, I'll lay out the arguments, you know, one group which would like to do research on geoengineering. I mean, there's no one who's really arguing, okay, let's deploy geoengineering today, but one group of scientists, you know, very smart people who are saying we, we need to do research on that, say, look, it's at least a 20 or 30 year research project just to find out if this is even feasible and what are the, you know, many myriad potential uh, bad effects. And then, you know, we need to have this vast global decision-making process. No one knows how that would ever work. So we need to consider it because you know, we're not reducing our emissions. Things are getting worse. There's just no, you know, there's no getting around that. And even if we were to start reducing our emissions, uh, even quite dramatically, the pro problem would still get worse because the climate, uh, the, the atmosphere, once you put CO2 up there, it, it sticks around. People compare it to a bathtub. Unless you turn that tap off completely, you're still, the bathtub is still filling up. So, you know, we're really, really getting up against it and we're potentially setting emotions, motion processes that we really, really don't want to start. So that's one, I think, you know, really compelling argument. Um, you don't have many uh, potential ways to counteract climate change and you may face a humanitarian or ecological disaster. I just don't think there's any way around that. Now, the other group, and it's also a very compelling argument, would say, Anything that takes the pressure off of reducing emissions, this idea that in some you know hazy future when things get really bad, you know we're going to put a lot of reflective particles up into the atmosphere. Uh, anything that gives us that potential escape route is really really dangerous. Um, so let's not even talk about this. Let's not research it. Uh, let's just put it you know back in its box. And I think they're both really compelling arguments. I sort of suspect uh, argument number one is gonna eventually win out because as we see these impacts growing, there's going to be a clamor, well, what are we going to do? And as I say, there just aren't very many options. One of the scariest 
concepts in Under a White Sky is, um, and I might mispronounce this, but it's a it's a human-induced Dansgaard Erschke event. Could you please explain what that means, Elizabeth? Yeah. So in the in the record of the climate, we now have you know really detailed records of the climate going back. Uh, certainly to the beginning of the last ice age, let's put it that way. So certainly like 130,000 years or so. And we see in the record, these really wild swings uh, during the last ice age and in the period when the earth was coming out of the last ice age. So 12, 13,000 years ago. So, you know, the climate, the average global temperatures would change, you know, 10 degrees in a matter of 50 years or 100 years, it's just a staggering amount. And then, and then they would change back again, flip back again. So you get this flickering effect. And that's just quite well established, quite well agreed that that happened. Now, the question is, why did it happen? What is this instability in the climate system? And how is that triggered? And the answer to that is unknown. But the real worry, and I've been to Greenland with scientists who are studying this, uh, the real worry is that it has to do potentially uh, with sea ice melt, for example, which we are definitely doing, melting the sea ice, and that you could get another one of these flips. So not a gradual or, you know, or even rapid, uh, you know, rise in temperature, but some kind of just complete transition uh, that would really, really be incredibly challenging for 21st century society to deal with. And when you hear people talking about like the, is, the, is this circulation in the North Atlantic, is that slowing down? Is that gonna stop? Um, that's sort of what they're talking about. Are you gonna get this big flip in the climate system? Um, you write in Under a White Sky that um, the last 10,000 years of climate stability are in some ways unusual. Um, I almost thought this morning, maybe I should play Joni Mitchell's song, you know, about you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Like, uh, but I thought that'd be a bit corny. But uh, yeah, you're right that all of the civilization falls within this period of relative tranquility. I mean, we have taken a stable climate for granted, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, it's really this record, which most of which comes from, I should say, ice core from Greenland. So and I've been to some of these ice coring operations and they're just phenomenal. So you go to Greenland and you're standing on top of 10,000 feet of ice. So, you know, just this uh, two miles worth of ice. And what they do is they send a drilling machine down and they pull up these, these long cylinders of ice and have figured out how to analyze them so that they can get both uh, the composition of the atmosphere and the temperature uh, going back year by year, basically. So that's how we get this amazing temperature record. And what we see from that record, in addition to these wild swings, is that the last 10,000 years have been unusually, as you say, anomalously, anomalously stable. Now, is it a coincidence that agriculture uh, developed during this period, that you know, all of you know, what we consider to be you know, the major civilization, human civilizations, um, you know, from, from, you know, that Egyptians and the Incans and, you know, all, all around the globe also correspond to this 10,000 years of relative calm 
in the climate. Is that a coincidence? Um, a lot of people would say, you know, probably not. Uh, you've written in the past, um, in your uh, Climate of Man essays that became field notes from a catastrophe back in 2005, you were looking at the collapse of um, ancient Sumerian civilization due to a prolonged drought in like 2200 BC. If I could quote one of the scientists um, that, uh, you, that you quoted in that essay said, um, uh, and this really struck me, uh, the thing they couldn't prepare for uh, was the thing, the same thing that we won't prepare for, because in their case they didn't know about it, and because in our case the political system can't listen to it, and that is that the climate system has much greater things in store for us than we think. Do you think yeah, that the public think understands? Yeah, if you, if you talk to paleo, you know, there's a whole field now called paleoclimatology, where people study the climates of the past. And more and more, we see these episodes where there were, you know, there were just natural uh, climate changes for, for, you know, complicated reasons. Sometimes we don't even know the reasons, but, you know, average global temperatures maybe, or not even average, regional temperatures might have dropped or risen by, you know, one degree, something that, you know, we're going to blow past, no problem. Or you got a very serious, uh, and, and those were accompanied often, often, it seems, um, the changes that were really quite destabilizing were droughts. How do you deal with having no water? Uh, how do you deal with not being able to, you know, grow the crops that you were accustomed to growing? Um, and so that particular um, civilization whose demise has been linked to drought, Akkad, the, the kingdom of Akkad, um, as you say, that roughly you know, 4,000 years or so. Um, there are so this, I also quote in, in that book, this poem that sort of survives from that time. And it's, it's, it's actually incredibly, it's, it's incredibly bleak and incredibly modern sounding uh, and incredibly moving. People, you know, talking about, you know, what, what happened here? Um, Australia, of course, is home to one of the world's oldest continuing civilizations going back 60,000 years. Um, there was a fantastic book called Sand Talk by a Deakin University academic, um, Tyson Junker Porter, that talks about how stories, um, you know, preserved by Aboriginal cultures talk about um, the last ice melt. Uh, when there was, you know, a land bridge to PNG. Um, what do you think we can learn from the survival and continuity of Aboriginal culture in Australia uh, about surviving climate instability? Well, I, I mean, I think that's a really good question, a really interesting, really interesting question, because, of course, you know, humanity, Homo sapiens as a species, we've been around um, you know, let's say roughly 300,000 years. So we, we made it through, um, you know, two ice ages too. So, and, and a lot, as you say, a lot of climatic changes. So through the ice age and through the transition out of the ice age. Um, and during that time, our, our ancestors, you know, who, who include the Aboriginal Australians, obviously, uh, and many, many other cultures, um, you know, some some didn't make it, obviously, um, but they lived a lot more. You know, to to use a sort of American Native American phrase, 
a lot more lightly on the land. They got up and left. I mean, if there was a drought in one part of Australia, and I am by no means an expert on this, but I'm sure many people have looked at, you know, patterns of settlement around Australia during times when, when the continent maybe was even drier than it is now, or maybe wetter than it is now. Um, and where did people live? And they, they followed, obviously they followed the game and they followed the water. Um, but when you think about that and that, you know, you could say, well, there's a, there's a lesson there. Um, but, you know, we're almost 8 billion people on the planet. There's no just, you know, sort of getting up and moving. We have national borders. We have private, you know, property. We're, we're, we, we have agriculture, uh, which tie us to, to certain places. Uh, you know, you, you, it's really hard to get up and, and move Sydney. Um, so ways in which our ancestors did survive really, really challenging climatic changes, excuse me. <clears throat> I don't know, I honestly don't know how much relevance they have for you know, 2021 and, and on, um, but it's possible that if we went back and, and, and were able to reconstruct some of the ways in which they adjusted, um, it, it, that we would, we would find really interesting lessons. Uh, Junker Porter writes about the, uh, that concept of moving with the land. Um, there are credible estimates that, um, you know, the a rise of four degrees will create a planet with a carrying capacity of a billion people, perhaps. Um, you know, we move to the poles. Um, uh, you know, you have yourself quoted a scientist saying that by 2100, he imagines that uh, pretty much everything will be destroyed. There's a potential for geopolitical instability. It is uh, um, uh, absolutely dire kind of situation, isn't it, that we are now kind of confronting? Well, I mean, I think that I think that the key point to make about climate change and why climate scientists have been trying to raise this alarm for such a long time. I mean, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is, you know, going to celebrate or, or mourn whatever, you know, word you want to use 30 years in existence soon and has been, you know, offering increasingly urgent warnings. As you said, the last one, you know, was labeled, you know, code red for humanity. And, and the reason for that you know, goes back to this sort of geophysical, um, obdurate geophysical facts that we were talking about before. Um, there's this sort of time lag in the system. So if you don't like, you know, there's a tweet from an American climate scientist, uh, which I think is quite brilliant. I, I think he tweeted it out last summer, um, a guy named Andrew Dessler, and it was and it was, you know, during some, you know, season, a season of wildfires and hurricanes and, you know, not that dissimilar from this summer's season of wildfire and hurricanes. And he said, if you don't like, you know, the weather this summer, I've, I've got some bad news for you for the rest of your life, uh, because it's not like this is something that you can switch off. Uh, the momentum is all moving in one direction. Um, and we are just feeling, we're not feeling the full effects of the CO2 that's already up there right now, because it takes quite a while on the, on the order of decades for the earth to sort of reach a new equilibrium. So we're building in effects and, and we, that's, as I say, climate scientists warn us, don't wait, do not wait until you see this climate that you don't like, which is essentially what we've done. Because by then, you know, there's already, 
you're already way ahead of that. Uh, you're already in deeper and deeper. Um, and that's, these are just unfortunately facts at this point. And the way we deal with them, you know, can we get our heads around this um, in the face of growing suffering and, um, and cost, you know, economic cost uh, to do what we already do know how to do, which is a lot that could ameliorate the situation, both in terms of, you know, what is called climate adaptation, building differently, living differently, uh, and in terms of pulling our emissions, getting our emissions down so that, you know, our grandchildren will not inherit an absolutely unlivable, as you say, a, a planet with a carrying capacity of a billion, uh, which when you have 8 billion people on the planet, uh, implies a great deal of horror. Uh, America is the biggest uh, historical contributor uh, to greenhouse gas emissions. Australia is per capita um, the worst in the developed world. Um, we uh, both are wealthy, innovative, highly educated countries. Uh, why are we so far behind on taking action to solve this problem, do you think? Yeah. Well, I, I do think there's one you know, pretty simple reason, and they and it applies to both the U.S. and Australia, which is that we are both still nations that where there's a lot of wealth being pulled out of the earth, extractive industries that are contributing to this problem. The U.S., you know, under Barack Obama, uh, who did voice and even did do some things that were, you know, positive in terms of trying to. Um, reduce emissions also presided over, you know, the U.S. is once again becoming a major oil uh, exporter based on this sort of unconventional oil, not oil that, you know, gushes out of the ground. Like, you know, you see those pictures uh, back from the turn of the 20th century, but oil that's that you get at by very complicated, uh, technologically advanced, you know, fracking, hydraulic fracturing. So, um, you know, there's a there are huge vested interests, and I'm not going to speak for the Australians, but you know Australia is obviously a major coal uh, producing country. Um, so that is one you know just very sort of obvious answer. Now I don't know if that accounts entirely, you know, because most of the U.S. is really not making its money off of oil or coal or natural gas, um, but enough of it is to clog up the politics. And then there's also, I think, just a sheer level of, um, of denial. You know, it's, it's, it's remarkable what people can convince themselves of uh, if they want to. We've seen that with COVID in the U.S. I can't speak for Australia. Um, you know, you'd say, well, who, who could convince themselves that COVID isn't dangerous? You know, people are dying of it every single day. And yet we are having fights all the time about public health precautions. So, you know, it's it's kind of, it challenges, it's challenged our sense of human rationality, honestly. And um, people have called climate change, you know, you know, COVID on speed or, or, or COVID climate change on speed because um, COVID, you know, is just moving a lot faster uh, and killing people sort of more quickly. But climate change obeys a lot of the same rules. Once you let it sort of get out of control, it's really, really hard it's impossible to put that genie back in the bottle. 
as a journalist uh, yourself, you've spent almost two decades trying to communicate the gravity of the of the kind of danger that we are facing. Um, what 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 do you what contribution do you think the media is making? Why why are why are we collectively failing to communicate the seriousness of of climate change? Well, you know, once again, I can't I can't exactly speak for Australia. I can speak for the American media, and I think that uh, for the most part, you know, maybe with the exception of some prominently Australian <laughs> owned media companies. Uh, the coverage has gotten a lot, lot better uh, over the last several years. And I think the reason for that, you know, it's a sad reason. It's because we are seeing these impacts. It's like, oh, you know, wake me up when we see the impacts. Okay, we're seeing the impacts and the media has responded to that or much of the media has responded to that. I think that the uh, print media has, um, may, maybe not so much TV, uh, which is a serious problem because that's where a lot, a lot of people are getting their news. Um, but I think that the other thing that we're seeing, and this gets a little bit back to, you know, people can believe anything, um, it turns out, is we now have so many different ways to get your news. And if you want to be reading, you know, news in which, you know, Hurricane Ida wasn't impacted by warm water in the Gulf of Mexico or in which the fires in California were not impacted by the fact that this, you know, there's a tremendous historic drought going on. You can find that news on the web and you can consume that and convince yourself, you know, that this is all going to change. It's just a cycle. It's just going to, you know, reverse itself one day. Do you think uh, you, you wrote of the Australian uh, bushfires, you, um, the, we had our black summer in 2019, um, perhaps, you know, uh, in the US, you're going through something comparable um, now, but uh, you wrote that 2019 was, you know, the year that uh, the world woke up to the, to, to the climate crisis. Um, do, you, uh, do you think, I mean, I saw President Biden calling in the wake of, um, you know, uh, Hurricane Ida for climate action. Uh, do you think uh, heading into the, you know, um, next UN talks at Glasgow, do you think we've come to some kind of tipping point where perhaps that there will be a, a facing up to the risks uh, of climate now? Well, I think, you know, uh, it's, it's definitely a good news, bad news story. I think the good news, I'll give you the good news first. Um, the American team under, you know, Joe Biden will go to Glasgow and push for progress as opposed to under Donald Trump for the last four years trying to impede progress. Um, so that's the good news. The, the, the bad news or not so good news is that um, American politics, which I, I don't want to get into the sort of you know nitty gritty of the two houses and the way they're divided, very, very close, narrowly split between the two parties, and the fact that we have elections coming up again in 2022, um, but that has prevented so far, at least and now we're only like eight months into new administration, but it has prevented any really serious action. And the question of whether this administration will be able to get sort of serious legislation, uh, will be answered, unfortunately, for better or worse in the next few months. Uh, so it's a huge test in the U S but they will go to international climate talks 
um, putting putting the best face on that. In the meantime, we're stuck now in the Anthropocene where um, uh, everything's contaminated now by human uh, activity. The subtitle of your book is The Nature of the Future. Um, you write that we have a no-analog future, we're a no-analog predicament. Um, one of your arguments is the nature of the future is going to need our help. Uh, under a white sky is a catalogue of attempts to undo the damage that uh, we've done to nature. Um, almost always they fail or cause unintended side effects and you're kind of dispassionate and merciless in the way you follow those through. Can you tell us this, how a well-meaning response to Silent Spring um, leads to uh, a desperate effort to stop um, Asian carp getting into the Great Lakes? Yeah, that's sort of an, the ultimate sort of um, unintended consequences story. So Silent Spring, uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which warned about the terrible impacts that synthetic pesticides were having on all sorts of wildlife, you know, not just insects, but birds and fish and to certain, and you know, mammals to a certain extent, including humans, came out in 1962. And it had a huge impact in the U.S. Uh, and here. very few books have e equaled it, yeah, since then, um, if any, honestly. And um, in in the sort of aftermath of and and for you know for those who have not read Silence Spring or haven't read it recently, she ends the book um, with a chapter called uh, "The Road Not Taken," uh, taken from the famous Robert Frost. Home. And it's all about this idea of biological control. We shouldn't be pouring pesticides all over everything. We should be much cannier, much slyer about it. We should use uh, one pest, as it were, to try to manage another pest. And she's really talking about insects, but people took this quite seriously. Let's use biological control to try to solve our problems. And one thing they did in the U.S. is they imported several species of, of Asian carp. These are actually, there's some, they're often lumped together as a species, but they're actually several different species. And these carp were gonna do different things. They were gonna help uh, get rid of the nutrient loading from sort of insufficiently treated sewage. They were gonna eat invasive weeds, uh, all sorts of you know, wonderful things. Um, what happened, of course, immediately was even when they were in experimental stations looking at, you know, what could be done, they got out. They have these tiny little fingerling young that are, you know, just tiny, could get through any mesh. Uh, and they became incredibly successful invasive species and caused their own kind of, you know, ecological havoc, which Australians are, you know, profoundly familiar with the havoc that invasive species can cause. Um, and now they are everywhere in the Mississippi River system. Uh, so, you know, the US's major river system. Some places you can, you know, you can go online or you, in my book, I, I offer one of these photos of these fish jumping out. They, they have this interesting habit when they, when they're bothered by something and that something could be the motor of your boat. Uh, they throw themselves quite high up into the water. And um, so it's a marvelous and very frightening sight to see this. And I myself have been hit by one of them, uh, not badly, but people are constantly getting injured, you know, having their eye socket broken by these carp, 
flying out of the water. So it's, you know, both just a problem for people uh, in a recreational and fishing sense, but it really has completely transformed uh, the ecosystem as well. And you start the book um, on a boat with an electric fish barrier that's trying to prevent those carp from getting into the Great Lakes. Uh, yeah, so it's the a, other part of it's that It's a metaphor story. of sorts. I'm sorry? It's a metaphor of sorts. I mean, the takeout for me was, uh, are we just hopeless? I mean, are people just stupid? We kind of continually with, you know, the, the hubris of these interventions. Uh, it doesn't bode well for geoengineering uh, attempts, for example. Yeah, it's hard to look at um, these stories and not feel, you know, a pit in your stomach um, because we are intervening, you know, in all of these systems, even just by bringing, you know, even just carting goods across the world. You know, there's an estimate that um, 10,000 species every day are being moved around the world in the in the ballast water of super tankers, right? And it doesn't, if you're moving that many species around every day, uh, only a few, only, you know, a tiny, tiny fraction of them have to be uh, dangerous or pathogenic in some way for you to get a really big problem. And once again, I think COVID has really demonstrated, you know, the, the hazards of globalization that that virus, you know, is is presumably the result of, of what's called a spillover event, right? When, you know, a virus jumps hosts and the host it jumped to was, was us. Um, and spillover events presumably have happened, you know, throughout human history, but they presumably also, you know, they just burned out pretty quickly because people didn't move around the world. Now, if you if you look, you can go on Wikipedia and see how fast COVID spread around the world. It was uh, within a couple months, it was, you know, it was in the Falkland Islands. It was on the Kamchatka Peninsula. It was in some of the most remote places in the planet, on the planet, because we just move around so much. Yeah. Um, actually, in uh, Body Count, my book, uh, I spoke to scientists to say we're in, actually, the causes of global warming and the causes of a new age of pandemics are actually quite closely related. Globalization, deforestation, overconsumption, overpopulation. These things are causing these spillovers, these zoonotic uh, uh, infections to rise since the 1980s and particularly with the beginning, you know, perhaps around the uh, HIV AIDS pandemic. And uh, it's another one of the kind of consequences of, um, of warming. Yeah, and we, you know, we, it's a consequence both of changing the climate, but also of the way we interact with other species. You know, I mean, we are pressing in more and more into, you know, territory that um, humans have rarely ventured into. We, we mow down the rainforest, we set up, um, you know, whole new cities uh, in places that, you know, very few people ventured into for, you know, the last 10,000 years has that, I mean, not no one, I don't want to say no one, but, you know, pretty few people. And when they did, they were quite isolated uh, from the rest of the world. So, you know, these diseases, um, as I said, that might've jumped to, to humans and might've, you know, might've been very damaging. Um, they, they just didn't have a chance to spread uh, the way they do now. And, you know, 
I think the parallels, as you, as you said, between COVID and climate change, um, they're numerous and scary because, you know, I can point to you several books, really good books, I recommend them, um, that completely predicted COVID. I mean, you know, down to, you know, it was going to be a viral pandemic uh, and it was going to be spread just the way we're seeing it now. Um, and in, and some people would say we were actually pretty lucky with COVID so far, at least. It's not, you know, that lethal. Uh, it's lethal, but it's not, you know, that lethal. We, 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 this you may, might just be a dress rehearsal. Um, so we are warned, we continually are warned, uh, and we blithely go ahead. Um, so that's where we are. And now the question of, you know, would you trust a species like this to then, you know, manipulate the stratosphere, let's say, just to use one example, or to to go the opposite direction from the very big to the very small to, you know, manipulate the genomes of other creatures or potentially manipulate the genomes of ourselves, um, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Well, that uh, brings me to Australia. Your book, um, you spent quite a bit of time here in Australia and you talk about some of the uh, attempts at what you might call unnatural selection. Uh, so uh, you look at um, the attempt to breed warming-resistant re corals up on the Great Barrier Reef or to use CRISPR to gene-edit cane toads. Uh, you, you know, you... In some ways, Australia is kind of leading the world with some of these desperate attempts to at species control. Yeah, I mean, Australia is, um, you know, once again, I, I don't need to tell Australians this, but but it's sort of the, uh, it's certainly the mammalian extinction capital of the world. In some ways, it, it probably is even the extinction capital of the world, although there are other places probably giving you, you know, Hawaii, giving giving you a run for your money has that. Um, you know, a very isolated part of the world, very old part of the world where many fantastic creatures had evolved uh, in the absence of different groups of animals that just never made it over to Australia. Um, for example, toads, you have no toads. Uh, and then you bring in a, a cane toad, which is native to um, South and Central America. And not only, you know, do you... Um, native creatures not know how to deal with it. Unfortunately, it's extremely toxic. Well, then you get the situation, you know, that, that you have right now. And the many, many people, and I really, you know, I really admire this. I really admire all the people that I spoke to who are working on some pretty innovative ways to try to reduce this problem. I mean, I don't think anyone believes that Australia is getting rid of its cane toads anytime soon. Um, and they continue, once again, as most people in the audience probably know tonight, to work their way around, uh, you know, sort of the northwest corner of the country there. They're following the coast around. Uh, and they have a lot of room to continue to expand. Um, but there are a lot of, you know, people working on ways, attractants, traps, you know, you name it, can we get at the tadpoles, but the group that I went to visit uh, in Geelong were working on, are there ways to um, gene edit cane toads? And, and they had successfully gene edited uh, a couple batches, one batch in which they had um, sort of uh, gene edited the enzyme that 
makes the toads so toxic. So these toads were a lot less toxic. Um, now, you know, that was really interesting. That's incredibly interesting science. Um, and the question of sort of where you go from here and do you, are you gonna put gene edited cane toads out in the landscape? Uh, those are really interesting questions. They're, they become you know, pretty big policy questions. Yeah, uh, it's not natural though, is it? Uh, and, and so that's our kind of dilemma. Uh, what perhaps the end of nature has been kind of speculated, written about for decades, but uh, we're at a stage where, um, as you've written, obviously, uh, in the sixth extinction, we're in the mass, we've got a massive extinction underway. Uh, and uh, we've got a kind of desperate race against the clock to try and save uh, what we can, uh, because our, you know, human health depends, apart from anything else, on animal health as well. And uh, and not to mention the kind of beauty and um, uh, everything else that we lose with those species. Um, can I you talk about you talk one one of the stories that didn't make the book uh, was South Australia the. Um, Arid Recovery Project that you've written about um, elsewhere. Uh, try, a, a kind of, can you explain the concept of assisted evolution as we're kind of racing against the clock in this massive extinction? Yeah, that was a really interesting project. Um, as you say, it's it's in, it's in South Australia, sort of you know north of Adelaide, I guess. Um, and and what it is is um, a set of of exclosures, which I know are actually, you know, pretty fairly common, I guess, in Australia, really, really big ones, these huge, you know, fenced in pens, which um, are designed to keep out cats and foxes and to protect uh, the bilbies and the betongs and, you know, very, you know, endangered um, mammalian species. And the idea, and it's really, it's really the idea of a, of a really dynamic woman named, named Catherine Mosby, um, is okay, these creatures were thrown together, right? When the Europeans brought over cats and foxes and the native fauna just had no time to co-evolve with them, right? They were just, you know, eaten. Uh, so, and, you know, once again, I don't need to tell the Australian audience here, many, many mammalian species you know, are just gone. So those who are left in little remnant ragtag populations, the idea is, could you, and, and another point to make is that you also got rabbits at the same time. So you had introduced predators and you had introduced prey and the rabbits, you know, went crazy. And so these predators could, could completely destroy the native fauna and still have plenty to eat because they had all these rabbits. So could you, if you slowly introduced a bilby or a betong to a cat, let's say, could you breed up as it were, you know, some are going to get eaten, but maybe some are have certain defense, defensive behaviors that will allow them to escape predation. And over many generations, could you, you know, assist them to evolve into cat savvier, let's say, uh, creatures, because, you know, also cats aren't going away. Uh, so, I think it's a really, really interesting um, project. Um, and what I remember Catherine Mosby's telling me is, you know, well, maybe it will take a hundred years, um, but you know, what, what else are you doing? So, I mean, it's, it's, 
it's it's a long, long range commitment. Um, and it's not clear that it that it will work. It's not clear that it's possible, but it's a really interesting effort. Do you think these efforts are kind of elaborate um, forms of giving up? You know, that in some ways you're giving up on getting rid of cats, we're giving up on getting rid of cane toads, we're giving up on global warming and the impact on the reef, we're instead trying to breed uh, heat-resistant coral, uh, but it's a vainglorious effort. Well, I think that's such a profound question and I, I wish I had the answer for that. And that's really at the, that's, the question completely at the heart uh, of the book. You know, are, are we fooling ourselves uh, just into thinking, well, you know, we can come up with something. Uh, is it a form, you know, of giving up or is it a form of dealing with reality? I mean, I, I don't think you could find any serious scientists who would say, well, we're eliminating cantos from Australia. It's just um, as, uh, you know, as, it's it's sort of one of the ironies, I suppose, of um, our situation, which is we are actually extremely good at getting rid of animals. You know, we're, we've eliminated you know lots of them, and we're in the process of eliminating lots of them. But those that those that thrive uh, in a new place are extremely difficult to eradicate. Um, you know, just really, really, really difficult on a landscape the size of Australia. So I I do think that um, it would be foolhardy to say, okay, well, you know, we're going to, unless we can eradicate king toads, we're not going to do anything because, because that is also consigning yourself um, to failure. So the question of, you know, how much intervention uh, is appropriate and how much humility is appropriate in the face of, you know, previous interventions gone awry uh, as they say, that's 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 really that's completely the question at the heart of the book, and I don't have a good answer for it. I, I wish I did. Do you feel, in some ways, having spent um, two decades writing on warming, do you feel, in some ways, that you're writing the same thing over and over, or do you feel that you're writing it with increasing urgency or despair, or are you, in fact, increasingly dispassionate about it as as <laughs> As time goes on, well, honestly, this this latest book that I wrote was because I I was um, it was trying to look at things in a new way because I you could write the same climate change story that I wrote, you know, back when I wrote that series of articles in two thousand and five. Uh, I could I could just rewrite them every and sometimes I think I well that would be a lot easier just rewrite them <laughs> but uh, you know yes I, w- I was starting to you know bore myself to a certain extent so I I said well let's let's try to let's try to get at these issues from a from a different perspective and and it was really honestly it was really f- fun to write the book it was really fun uh, you know to visit. Um, you know, arid recovery and the gene edited cane toads and the project uh, up in Townsville trying to breed up um, more heat tolerant cor- corals. All those things were really fun and really fascinating. Um, you know, as I say, are they going to solve these problems? I, I don't know. Was there a moment when, how did it all start, Elizabeth, for you, Can if I can ask, was there a moment where you had, I mean, sometimes you'll see referred to 
it, it referred to as an oh shit moment where the gravity of climate change really hits home. Uh, was there a moment for you and can you tell us when it was and where? Yeah, I can tell you very um, clearly when and where. And it, um, my, my oh shit moment happened um, pretty early, I, I, as it were. <laughs> um, I went to Greenland in 2001 um, to do a story on one of these, those ice coring operations that I m- mentioned to you where they go back through history. They can go back basically over 100,000 years in these ice cores. And at the time, you know, climate change was definitely on the horizon, but it was not clear. The, as, as, as scientists would say, the, the signal hadn't really emerged from the noise yet. And on Greenland also, it had not, the signal had not emerged from the noise. But I was up there with this drilling team of scientists from Denmark, actually. And they said, well, they did not see a signal of warming at that point on the, on the top, very top of the ice sheet, which as I said, is at 10,000 feet. And I, I t- sort of took heart from that. And I was like, oh, okay, well, may, you know, okay, what, what do you think of that? And he was like, oh, well, that, it just, you know, it just hasn't happened yet. And I remember exactly what he said to me. He said, the physics of climate change are impeccable. You know, you, there's no denying this. This is, this is how physics works. You put CO2 up into the air, uh, you're going to get an increasingly warm planet. And that has really stuck with me. As I said, I think I'm quoting him verbatim. Um, and that is actually what sort of set me off. I was really a political reporter uh, for most of my career um, to write about climate change because it seemed like, well, the scientists were saying this to me up at the top of the green line sheet. But it wasn't getting out there, you know, and I had this very naive idea when I came back to the States that that I I was going to sort of set the record straight. And this was going to, you know, have this um, now everyone realize that this is a really serious problem and do something about it. Um, And that has not worked out that well. um, But that was the idea. Is it um, how do you as a non-scientist? How do you approach the challenge of um, of communicating such complex um, science? Uh, it's it, do you feel that um, scientists themselves you're doing something that scientists themselves are not capable of doing uh, in 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 communicating their their research? Well, I have to thank them in a lot of ways um, for not being great communicators because it's you know left terrain open for the non-scientists among us. But I, I often, you know, sort of think of myself as really, really a translator. You know, there are these, there's a language that scientists speak and it's, as, as everyone knows, you know, extremely jargon filled, very, very technical so that if I'm a scientist in one field and I read a paper that's out of my field, I, I might not understand it, right? Because the terms are so, um, everyone in that little world knows those terms and no one else does. Um, and so what I do is I you know, go out with these scientists. Um, I'm fortunate in that I can often go and spend a lot of time with them, you know, days or weeks even. 
out in the field. And I kind of forced them <laughs> to explain um, these things to me in English, uh, in, in language that I can understand. And since I am not a scientist, I, I sort of take myself as the test subject. If I can understand it, then I, then I sort of hope my readers can understand it. Um, and I, one thing that I would say, you know, in writing this last book in writing the sixth extinction, uh, and all of the many sort of scientific oriented pieces I've written for the New Yorker, people have been incredibly generous to me. Scientists have been incredibly generous to me. And I think that the, they would like to communicate with the public, but the pressures of publishing, you know, in the scientific journals, which have completely the reverse rules from storytelling. You know, you're not supposed to tell a story, you're supposed to drain the individuality and the color out of it. Um, so, you know, I get, I get to do that. And that, you know, is really a, a great privilege in a lot of ways. And I gotten to go places, including uh, one of my, the greatest trips I ever took, to be honest, was a to One Tree Island in the Great Barrier Reef. It has a, it's a tiny little island uh, in the south, southern part of the reef, um, which is, I think, a University of Sydney uh, research station uh, can accommodate maybe 20 people. Uh, you can't go there as a, you know, layperson. Um, but I went with a group of scientists, and it was really one of the most memorable and one of the most fantastic places that I've ever been. Uh, you wrote, um, actually, I'll just one one other question. Since you wrote um, Extinction, uh, the sixth extinction, you've now got a movement called Extinction Rebellion. You've got um, the school strikers for climate change. Uh, do you think that uh, even if the, um, you know, political system is not responding adequately, that on the ground, people are starting to uh, stand up? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think that, you know, it, it, just once again, to use the example of the US, which I know best, I think that um, there's a, a group very much young people called the Sunrise Movement, and they really are pushing, they were you know, I don't know if I could say they were instrumental in unelecting Donald Trump, but they certainly were a significant force bringing young people into the political system. You know, we have a big problem in the states of, of, of young people not voting, simply not voting in, in the same proportion that older people vote at. at. And um, now also pushing Congress uh, to, to act on climate change. Now, you know, once again, is this enough? Um, it's certainly important countervailing force to, you know, a lot of money and power uh, and political muscle in the in the hands of the fossil fuel industry. Um, you really need to fight a lot of money like that with huge, huge numbers of votes. And I'm just not sure uh, that we're there yet. But uh, you know, I, I do feel confident we will be one day because um, of what we're seeing around us uh, or, or, yeah, you know, so many people feeling such, such serious climate change impacts. Um, but, you know, time, time, once again, to sort of circle back to what we're talking about, 
at the top of the hour, you know, time is not on our side because the problem has already moved ahead, you know, by the time you get your head around it, unfortunately. So do you have, as a last question, uh, do you have some hope? You, that we could well, have avert really, the worst I of it. Really, yeah, I really think we need to set that. I, I almost wish that, I'll be honest, that there was like a moratorium on that word. It's, the, the question is really not how we feel. The question is, are we going to do something? And uh, I do think that I am, you know, as as you can tell from this conversation, I am you know, profoundly disappointed in our response. I'm skeptical of our ability to get our act together in time, but there's really no option uh, but to keep trying. Um, and I think another really important point to make is, you know, there's no, there's no moment. There's no, you know, we, there's a lot of talk of tipping points and, and those are real. I don't, I don't want to dismiss that in any way. But there's no moment in which things can't get worse, and we have to try to minimize uh, to minimize the damage. We can't simply say, "Oh well, things are really screwed up. Uh, let's just, you know, go out and party." That's just, uh, you know, so evidently immoral um, that we that we have to uh, put aside whether we feel hopeful or not hopeful or cheerful or not cheerful, and just do the work. Elizabeth, thank you so much. It's fantastic to talk to you. I loved your book. And, uh, and thank you. Um, if only we could have a round of applause. <laughs> but we can't. Maybe, maybe someday. <laughs> thank you. Thank, th thanks so much. You can watch this talk on stream and you'll find the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Ideas at the House. Thank you.